as, uh, as Keith already said, we're starting a new sermon series today. And I know that throughout our Advent series, I kept saying, we're going to come back to Revelation. We're going to come back to Revelation. We are going to come back to Revelation, but I wanted to hold off a little while. One, because most of our UConn students aren't back yet. And two, because I thought it'd be nice to have a little bit more time to research and pray about Revelation, because as you all know, it's kind of a complicated book. So in the interim, in January, we're doing this series, uh, The Early Years, Four Scenes from Jesus's Boyhood. And uh, as many of you probably know, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about Jesus's early years, which for those of us who are curious, it's kind of disappointing. Uh, but it does describe four episodes from prior to his adolescence, and that's what we're going to be looking at. We just celebrated Jesus's birth, so it seems like now is a good time to look at his early years. And the first event that we're looking at is what's called Jesus's presentation at the temple, which I'm sure you can imagine why we decided to have this coincide with our infant dedications, uh, because what happened with Jesus was in some ways similar uh, to what just happened with Kaisa, Kaisa and Carson. Not exactly the same, but in some ways similar. Um, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to be presented at the temple, they were recognizing something similar to what we just recognized with Kaisa and Carson, that he, is, he was a gift from God uh, who belonged to God for his service. So let's read the story of what happened uh, when Mary and Joseph did that. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And uh, I will say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you again so much for Kaisa and Carson and being able to uh, celebrate them and uh, dedicate them to you this morning. And uh, we pray that now you would help us to turn our attention to your word. Uh, Lord, speak to us through it, Lord. Illuminate uh, these words. Uh, give us insight into what we read and help us to be ready to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had, been, had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So let me stop here a moment. Uh, it says that Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple when the time of their purification had been completed. Now what's that about? Well, after a woman gave birth to a son in those days, uh, she was recognized as ceremonially unclean, such a hard word to say, ceremonially unclean uh, for 40 days, uh, which meant that during that time she wasn't supposed to enter a sacred space like the temple. Uh, so when Joseph and Mary go to the temple, that means that Jesus is about 40 days old. It says that he was eight days old when he was circumcised, uh, but he wasn't taken to the temple until 33 days later. I also want us to notice the kind of sacrifice that Mary and Joseph bring. It says that they brought a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And what's easy to miss is that that actually tells us something 
about the kind of people that Mary and Joseph were. Uh, if we go to the law of the Lord, uh, Leviticus chapter 12, it tells us, these are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So did you hear that? If she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring these birds. And what did Mary and Joseph bring? They brought the birds. So what this implies is that Mary and Joseph were a poor couple. And that fact should remind us of something that we've been emphasizing over and over again throughout the Christmas season, which is the humility of God. When God chose to take on flesh and be born into this world, he chose to be born to a poor family. God is happy to identify with the poor. He's not embarrassed to be associated with the poor. God shows his strength through weakness. And that's good news. Now, with that in mind, I want us to recognize that there is a, a great irony in this passage that's easy to miss, which is this. Mary and Joseph aren't able to bring a lamb. But what people don't realize is that they're actually bringing the Lamb of God into the temple who is going to take away the sins of the world. So no literal lamb to bring, but they are bringing the supreme lamb who will offer the final sacrifice for sins that will in effect end the need for, for sacrifices forever. Right? So that's what you call some uh, beautiful God-ordained irony right there. Now, this passage is going to go on to tell us about two people who have a special reaction to Jesus' presentation at the temple, uh, Simeon and Anna. So let's keep reading in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Waiting for the consolation of Israel is a, is a way of saying, waiting for Israel to be comforted, uh, which means Simeon was waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. He was waiting for the arrival of the promised king who would make things right with Israel and make things right with the world. Continuing in verse 26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, Simeon sees Jesus, and he knows that this is the long-awaited consolation of Israel. This is the Messiah. 
And he takes Jesus in his arms, and he declares, as he looks at Jesus, that he is beholding God's salvation. And not just salvation for Israel, right? But he says salvation for the Gentiles too. Salvation for the whole world. This child is not just the consolation of Israel, but the consolation for all the world. But not everything Simeon has to say is happy. Hopefully we notice that. Uh, According to Simeon, this salvation that Jesus is going to bring is not going to come easy. Uh, Right? He says people will speak against Jesus. They'll be hostile. Not everyone's going to like what Jesus has to say. And he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Which is a way of saying, this child's life is going to cause you some deep pain. And of course now we know what that prophecy was about, because we know that Mary watched as her beloved son was crucified and suffered a a humiliating death on a cross. I'm sure that that was like a sword piercing her soul, right, as it would be for any mother. This salvation is not going to come easy. Simeon says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. What does that mean? Well, again, it means this child isn't just going to make everybody happy. Some people are going to be humbled by this child. His ministry will cause them to fall. And some people are going to be exalted. They're going to rise on account of his ministry. And, of course, that's exactly what happened, right? Jesus' ministry often exalted those who were humble and humbled those who were exalted. Jesus was a friend to the poor and the disadvantaged and the rejected of society. And at the same time, he challenged the the rich and the powerful when they abused their privilege. And I think this is an important reminder for us. It's important for us to remember that the gospel offends the proud. It causes some people to fall. In order for salvation to come, if salvation is going to come to an individual, to a nation, to the world, the proud need to be humbled. The proud need to recognize that they don't have a right to look down on everybody else. The proud need to recognize that they need the grace of God, just like other sinners. The proud need to realize that they need God's help. The proud need to realize that they need to submit to God. And that's why Jesus' message is always going to have an offensive edge to it. And if it never does, it's not the true gospel. But it is also a message of salvation. Let's look at the other person who reacts to Jesus. uh, A woman named Anna. Verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Now, you might have a note in your Bibles here, like I do, which says that some translations put it not she was a widow until she was 84, but that she was a widow for 84 years. And I actually think that's the more likely translation. Which would mean, if you do the math there, she's a widow for 84 years, she was married for seven years, 
And we, if we assume she was married at 14, okay, women got married very young in those days, if you add that up, that makes her 105. So then it would really make sense why it says she was very old, right? She was uncharacteristically, exceptionally old. Continuing in verse 37, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, as an up to Mary and Joseph, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So we're not given as much detail about what Anna said as we are with Simeon. But what's clear is that like Simeon, Anna recognizes that this child is the promised Messiah, right? Because as soon as she sees him, she praises God, and then she goes and starts telling everybody who's waiting for the Messiah about what she's seen. Now, if I had to identify what is the one main purpose of this story, that's easy. Uh, the purpose is to reveal, to, to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, because from the time he was an infant, there were prophets in Israel who were looking at him and going, yep, that's, that's, that's him. That's who we've been waiting for. That's the main reason that Matthew recorded this, I believe. But what I really want to focus on for the rest of this morning is these characters of Simeon and Anna. I don't know about you, but I find them really fascinating. And I think that there are a few things that we can learn from their example. So, first thing that I want us to, to notice about them is that they knew Jesus was the Messiah because of supernatural revelation. They knew Jesus was the Messiah because of supernatural revelation. Now, as far as we know, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple, he wasn't glowing with some sort of, you know, heavenly light. Uh, they didn't come in and announce, we have in our hands here God in the flesh. Nothing like that, right? And yet, Simeon and Anna knew when they saw Jesus, this is the Messiah, how do they know that? They knew that because God made it known to them. It wasn't something that they determined through the scientific method or logic or research. It was revealed through the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we learn from that? We learn that sometimes, sometimes people know things and there's no explanation for how they know them other than, God showed this to me. Now, we have to be careful not to get carried away with that fact. That is something that the Bible shows us. But um, I am not saying that we should assume that all of our hunches and intuitions are actually messages from God. We have to be very careful about that. Uh, I'm also not saying that reason and logic and, and research and science shouldn't play an important part in forming our understanding of the world. God gave us minds and we should use them. But what I'm saying is this. The Bible is clear that sometimes people know things, especially things about God, because those things have been supernaturally revealed. 
And one of those things that people have revealed to them is what Simeon and Anna had revealed. Jesus is Lord. I've always been the kind of person that's into apologetics. If somebody asks me, why do you believe Jesus is Lord? I like to have a bunch of ready answers for that. But I recognize there are tons of people who know and love Jesus who if somebody asked them, give me all your reasons for believing that Jesus is Lord, convince me. They'd kind of be like, I don't know. But that doesn't mean that they still don't know that Jesus is Lord. Because they they know on on the basis of a revelation, an experience with God. Now, you might wonder, okay, well, does that mean that if somebody recognizes Jesus as Lord, it's simply because God just decided to flip an on switch in their brains? Is that how salvation works, that God just flips that switch on for some people, and for others, he just doesn't bother to do it? Well, I would say that that way of understanding how we come to recognize Jesus as Lord is way too simplistic way too simplistic. It's not reflective of the truth. Because let's not forget, Simeon and Anna, the ones who had this revelation, these were people who were seeking God, right? We're told that Simeon was righteous and devout. And the description of Anna is especially intense, right? This 105-year-old woman, it says that she never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, praying and fasting. So both Simeon and Anna, they were people of prayer. They were people of spiritual discipline. They were were people who were intentional about listening for God. People who wanted to connect with their creator. So yeah, on the one hand, you could say, yeah, God flipped a switch for them. He revealed to them that Jesus was Lord. But on the other hand, they were seeking the flipping of that switch, right? They were seeking the wisdom of God, the revelation of God. God spoke revelation to them, but they were also actively seeking to hear from him. I think we see a very similar dynamic with the disciple Peter. Um, You might remember that when Peter first confesses that Jesus is the Christ, uh, Jesus says something interesting to him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So, in other words, Peter, the reason that you know this, the reason that you know who I truly am, is not because you're smart. It's not because you reasoned it out and you were very logical and thorough and did all your your research. You know this because of divine revelation. Because, yes, in a sense, God flipped the switch on for you. But before we get too carried away and we just say, oh, if somebody knows Jesus, it's just because a, flip got, a switch got flipped on by God. We have to remember, Peter wasn't just given this revelation out of nowhere, right? Peter had left his job as a fisherman, left his nets behind. When Jesus called him, he went and followed him. He pursued him, right? And we also need to remember that this Jesus that he pursued said these words, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So what what does this all mean? What am I trying to say? I'm saying that the process of coming to know God, the process of coming to know Jesus as Lord, is a process of God supernaturally revealing himself, 
but also of us seeking him. There's a dynamic going on here. It is overly simplified to say, oh, you'll only know who, who Jesus is if God just arbitrarily flips on a switch for you. But we also can't say, oh, if you just work it out with your own natural mind, you'll be able to figure out the truth. There's a balance here, a beautiful dynamic, right? We seek, God reveals. God reveals, we seek. And what Simeon and Anna should remind us of is that if we want to be the kind of people who God reveals things to, we need to be the kind of people who listen for God's voice. We need to be the kind of people who value prayer and worship, connecting with the Lord. You know, I think that if Simeon and Anna hadn't been seeking God, I don't think they would have looked at Jesus and known, oh, this infant is the Messiah. I think they would have just seen an ordinary infant. But they were people who listened for God's voice, who made time for that, who were, who were set on, on doing that. And so when God spoke, they heard. When we are intentional about li- listening to God's voice, when we are intentional about praying and seeking God, we may find ourselves knowing things that we would have no other reason for knowing or no explanation for how we know them. Like knowing just the right thing to say at the right time. Or maybe knowing that a particular person needs a phone call from us. I remember years ago, I just suddenly had this sense that I should call a friend of mine and say something to them. And I don't usually have those kinds of impulses, but I just had the sense I I should do that. And I called my friend, And they had been crying. And they said, I was just praying that somebody would reach out to me. When we are intentional about listening for God's voice, he reveals things. For Simeon and Anna, that revelation was that ordinary-looking baby right there, that baby is the Christ. But for us, the revelation might be something like, your friend needs a phone call. Or, it's time for you to change jobs. Or, you know that neighbor that you haven't talked to for a while? That neighbor is actually ready to be invited to church. The other thing that I want us to notice about Simeon and Anna is that they see themselves as part of a story that is much bigger than their own lives. They see themselves as part of a story that is much bigger than their own lives. God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And so when Simeon sees Jesus, he basically says, okay, I'm ready to to die now. You can dismiss me, Lord. So that suggests to us that Simeon was an elderly man, right? And of course, we know that Anna was very elderly. And what that means is that both Simeon and Anna were not going to have a chance to watch Jesus fulfill the Messianic promises. They were going to die before Jesus grew up, right? And yet, do you have any hint that they're bitter about that? I don't see that. They just seem happy. They seem joyful that the promised Messiah has come. Neither of them says, are you kidding, Lord? I have been praying and fasting and hoping and praying for this all my life, and then right as I'm at the very end, then then you send the Messiah? That's incredibly disappointing, Lord. Neither of them say that. Why? They're just happy. How come? The reason is because for Anna and Simeon, the story, 
that gives their lives meaning and purpose isn't just the story of what happens between their own birth and death. Right? The story that gives their lives meaning and purpose is God's story. God's story of creation all the way through redemption, where they are, they're part of that story, but they're not at the center of it. That's the story that gives their lives purpose and meaning. Simeon and Anna see themselves as part of that story, and because of that, they're able to celebrate and be happy. And so what I want us to to think about this morning and, and throughout this week is, do I see my life story as part of God's much bigger story? The pastor and author Greg Boyd says, the longer and more profound the narrative you're living in, the less you're going to be worried about petty things. Case in point, when I was in fourth grade, my best friend and I were both planning on dressing up as Sonic the Hedgehog for Halloween. And for my fourth grade self, this was a crisis. <laughs> we couldn't both be the same thing for Halloween. Are you kidding? That almost destroyed our friendship. It was a catastrophe. But now I look back on that and laugh. Why? Because now I see the story that I'm a part of as so much bigger than I did when I was in fourth grade. When I was in fourth grade, my world was very, very small, you know? And, and I was at the center of it, and my meaning and significance was dependent on things like my Halloween costume. And so my, when my friend was planning on being the same thing as me, that made me really angry. That threatened my significance. But now I laugh about that because I realize how insignificant a Halloween costume is in the bigger story of my life. And not only that, it seems even more ridiculous when I think about how small it is in comparison to God's big story of the creation and redemption of the world. So the narrative that I see myself being in is so much bigger and more profound than the one I saw myself as being in in fourth grade. When we see ourselves as part of a profound story that's going to stretch on into eternity, a story where God is at the center instead of ourselves, we're way less likely to sweat the small stuff. We're way less likely to be envious and worried and angry. We're less likely to get hung up on things like grades and the approval of our peers and whether or not our sports team won the game and how much money we have, right? Because in the context of the bigger story, those, those things just don't matter that much. Simeon and Anna saw themselves as part of that profound story that would stretch into eternity. And that's why they could joyfully celebrate Jesus' arrival, even though they were not going to get to see his earthly ministry in action. And that's a great example for us. When life disappoints you, remember that that, that disappointment is just a small piece of a far bigger story. A bigger story where if we are trusting in Jesus, that story ends with everlasting joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to have a perspective on life that honors you and that is accurate. Lord, help us to recognize that uh, we are part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves, and yet we have the privilege of being a part of it. God, we, uh, we thank you uh, for that reminder this morning. We pray that you would help us to seek you so that 
Uh, we can be open to hearing from you, Lord. We can be open to knowing things that we, we wouldn't have any natural reason for knowing. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.